0: Hello and welcome to Japan Explained! Today, we'll be talking about Commodore Perry's second expedition to Japan. If you didn't yet listen about his first visit in the previous episode, I highly recommend starting with it. Also today, as in the previous episode, I'm presenting together with Garrett from No Country for History podcast, because he has some really cool insights on the American side of events. So, if you are ready, let's start! Last time, we finished at the moment when Perry's squadron left Japan in July 1853. He promised to come back the next spring. That's almost a year to think about what happened and make a strategy for the second visit. And I guess that's partly why the expedition turned out to be so successful. Before the first visit, Perry and his team could only read about Japan and its people, but now they had the first-hand experience. So I wanted to ask you, did something change in Paris or his cruise opinion about Japanese people after the first visit?
1: So there was more acceptance, generally, less stigmatization, I guess. But there was still the assumption with it that Japan was a bit of a backward place that needed what America could give to it. There was this assumption that America had all of these amazing manufacturing goods that, that Japan needed you know, that Japan could give certain goods to America. And as we finished up the, the last episode, it's becoming pretty clear that Japan is likely going to agree to most, if not all of America's terms. And so there's this assumption that, okay, you're cool because you're going to do what we say, and we can get with that, which is a little ironic, right? Or the only way America can get Japan to agree to this is through threat of force especially because up until this point, Japan was rather comfortable with where they were. And I don't want to feed into the the stagnation myth that a lot of Americans are buying into. The West, for some reason, just thought that the East needed these manufactured goods. In a famous letter from King George of England in the late 1700s to China, the Chinese emperor ends up writing back to him and says, we have no need for your manufacturers. Basically, we don't, we don't want what you're selling, um, leave us alone. But that's obviously changed up until this point. And now America has their own slice of this East Asian pie that a lot of people in the West have these giant eyes over. So at the end of the day, a little more acceptance, a little less stigmatization, as long as it came with the assumption that Japan was subservient to American desires.
0: And there was no treaty signed yet. But organizing a meeting with Japanese officials and presenting a letter from the president was already a big step forward. Nobody managed to do that before. So I'm sure there were reports sent back to America, some letters, maybe newspaper articles. Could you please tell us?
1: So newspapers had been following it rather closely, but news had to come with Perry's uh, return, right? There was practically no reporting on the day-to-day. It was essentially, okay, Perry's gone. Oh, he's returned. These are the things that have happened. It's a great big step forward for the United States. What you see a lot during this time, though, in newspapers are advertisements for travel books. While Perry is in Japan, there are a lot of newspaper articles that are like, want to learn more about Japan? Here are travel books written by X, Y, and Z, this person who went there um, a couple years ago, if you want to understand a little bit more about it. You start to see a lot of those. Eventually Perry decides to write his own. It's quite literally just the report he presents to Congress and then he just publishes it. But still, I mean, Americans have a big desire to learn about this. And I should say it is the mostly upper educated Americans that are interested in this, especially because around this time, Japanese style, uh, Japanese goods and decor are what's in fashionably. And so the upper classes especially are very interested.
0: It's really interesting. You say that there was huge interest in America, but I also read that Perry himself, he was kind of stopping the reports. He didn't want to leak too much information because he was really afraid that somebody will jump in front of him.
1: Perry was a very interesting individual he was officially he was pretty much told to be aloof and for him that wasn't that hard he was already very much that way just as a person there was a fear that especially russia maybe would try to jump in and get to japan first and so you're right perry was rather protective uh, of a lot of this stuff and it's really not until after you know everything's finally finished that more details are able to come out
0: Meanwhile, in Japan, the rumors spread that shogun government knew about the arrival of foreign ships, yet couldn't prevent it or fight back. With shogun literally meaning general who overcomes the barbarians, people were expecting their de facto ruler to live up to this title. But just a few days after Perry's departure, shogun Tokugawa Ieyoshi died, leaving the government to his son Iesada. As the latter was not fit to rule, almost all domestic and now foreign affairs ended up in the hands of the chief councillor Abe Masahiro. And Abe picked a very unconventional strategy of decision-making. He called experts and organized a vote to hear Daima Feudal Lord's opinions on the subject. Reading all these foreign books didn't do him right, probably thought his more traditionalist colleagues. But Abe's measures could also be explained by his hesitation to make a decision. Both theories are really easy to believe, as to acknowledge capacity to resist occidental aggression would be to invite the ruin of the Tokugawa house. To resist, on the other hand, would be to invite the destruction of the empire. And who'd want to choose between the two? But let's look at what Abe actually did. First, he invited the experts to help counselors come to a decision. One of them was a man known as John Manjiro, a fisherman who at the age of 14 shipwrecked in the Pacific, was rescued by an American whaling board and later adopted and educated in America until he decided to come back to Japan 10 years later. While the young man was ready to die during his journey home, upon arrival to Japan he discovered that at least in his home Tosa province. Strict laws for returnees were abandoned in favor of practicality. After being formally imprisoned, Manjiro was soon hired to lecture about the world and especially America at school. By submitting Manjiro, Abe wanted to learn more about his enemy, but also to use fishermen-turned-criminal-turned-expert knowledge to lessen the fears and temper the zeal of nationalists who were eager to fight the black ships. Manjiro overdelivered. While providing a lot of factual information, he couldn't hide his affection for the Americans, so they turned into born-to-be-gentle, physically perfect and beautiful people, who were virtuous and generous and do no evil. While some counselors were convinced, others labeled Manjiro a spy, refusing to believe anything he had to say. Some also found it unacceptable that Abe called a peasant to advise the high-rank samurai government. But then chief senior counselor made another unexpected move. For the first time ever, the Tokugawa Shogunate made its decision making a matter of public debate. Ambe sent copies of the translation of the presidential letter to Daimyo, Confucian scholars, high Bakufu officials, and even the Imperial Court. What did they think about the demands? Should the country open itself or remain closed? Most of the Confucian scholars urged driving off the Americans without making any concessions to them. The Emperor's advice was to straighten the coastal defences. As for daimyo, asking them appeared to be a disaster. Most daimyo's didn't have much to say on the matter, why would they, they were never asked about anything. Out of 61 responses, 19 were in favor of accepting American offer, 19 against, and the remaining 23 were too vague to take into consideration. Yet most daimyo's seemed ready to go to war to prevent foreigners from setting their feet on a divine Japanese soil. What was even worse, the poll made it perfectly clear that the shogun government just cannot handle the incident on its own, making it look weak. Then there was Tokugawa Narayaki, a powerful head of the Mito clan, one of three families to provide an heir to the shogun if one would die childless. Nariaki was the direct opposite of Abe. He spoke and wrote about the dangerous Christianity foreigners will bring to Japan and how war would boost the morale of samurai. But he had some valid points too, like the ones about strengthening the coastal defense and he mentioned that Japan wins nothing from agreeing to the proposals stated in the president's letter. As the public opinion was even worse than Abe expected, while he was convinced that war with America would be tragic, he now faced the question of how to accomplish the extremely unpopular opening without bloodshed. Around three weeks after Perry's departure, Russian squadron, led by flagship Palada, entered Nagasaki. And like Perry, Vice Admiral Putetin complied with the demand that all intercourse with foreigners was to be conducted there, and he did not rant or showed off his guns and cannons by practice firing them, let alone threaten bombardment. But the mere presence of his squadron soon after the American one helped to convince the bakufu that the seclusion couldn't be sustained. Surrending to Perry's conditions was their only realistic alternative. Perry didn't know that. In his notes, the Russian squadron was his rival trying to take America's fame at opening Japan. He goes as far as claiming that if common to Perry, unfortunately, should fail in his peaceful attempts. Russia was on the spot, not to mediate, but to tender to Japan her aid and as ally in the conflict. On the second visit to China, Perry's eagerness to block any possible venture by a rival fleet went even further, as he'd been buying up all the coal he could and became furious when he learned that American in charge of naval stores responded to Putetin's pleas by lending him in violation of the commander's orders. 20 tons of that supply. That was the last straw. Already being afraid of competition presented by Russians and French, Perry reconsidered the initial plans of coming to Japan in late spring. I determined, rather than allow either the French or the Russians to gain the advantage over me, to encounter all the inconveniences and exposures of a cruise to Japan with so large force in midwinter regardless of the terrible accounts given by writers of the storms and fogs and other dangers to be met with on this inhospitable coast in the inclement season, he wrote in the report. Ignoring the Navy Department's order to leave one of his free steamers in China, Perry sailed from Hong Kong to Edo Bay via Naha on January 14, 1854. Right before leaving Naha for Japan, Perry received a letter from the Governor-General of Dutch India, conveying information of the death of the Emperor of Japan, actually the earlier mentioned shogun Ieyoshi, soon after the reception of the president's letter. The letter asked Perry to postpone the second visit. The Japanese government and Dash Factoria actually wanted to discourage Perry from coming at all, but the commander was determined the commander hoped the present rulers of Japan would present no obstacles to accomplishing friendly relations between the American nation and the Japanese. Again, his own words. On the 13th of February, the squadron reached Japan. By this time, more and more people in Japan supported Abe's position of peaceful dialogue with the foreigners. Even if Japan could build a force to fight Paris ships, it needed more time and money to do so. Improved coastal defense, one of the few things everybody within the government found important, would take at least five years to complete. The ships they ordered from Dutch and the ones Japan started to build itself were not yet ready, and even if they would, they had no chance against American steamers. Even Tokugawa Nariyaki accepted the policy of civil communication with the barbarians. Though, according to him, Bakufu should only show itself as accommodating to Perry while the rest of the country should continue preparing for possibly unavoidable war. The arrival of the enlarged squadron proved Abe's position right. The American fleet was not something Japan could easily fight off. To make his appearance even more impressive, Perry made the barely year-old paddle frigate Powhatan. Please correct me if I'm wrong, I have no idea how to say that.
1: No, it's, it's Powhatan. It's named after a Native American tribe somewhere like up in the northeast.
0: Yeah, actually a lot of Perry's ships were named somehow Native American sounding.
1: Yeah, a lot of them are. I think a lot of these ships were present in the Mexican-American war. Perry like specifically selected ships and commanders that he commanded during that war for this expedition. And so again there's that connection between trying to expand the united states and using all of these specific ships right like there's a clear connotation in their minds when they're using all this
0: yeah i didn't know it it's really cool <laughs> perry made powhatan joined the steamers mississippi and susquehanna as well as added a few smaller ships to the squadron Ignoring Japanese guardboards, the ships passed Uraga, entered the Edo Bay and anchored an American anchorage in the early afternoon. But while the shogun government in Edo was preparing for the inevitable, the second visit of black ships didn't spark as much interest in the general public. The rumors about barbarians returned and some leaflets were claiming that this time Japan will destroy them in a single stroke, but there was not much panic in Edo. People continued with their usual business. Japanese officials and interpreters came aboard the Powhatan, which Perry had made his flagship for the visit. Weeks of long, tiresome talks took place about where the Americans should land. Perry, again not in person but through Captain Adams, insisted that he'd made the Japanese negotiators on the shore opposite the present anchorage, while Japanese officials were as stubborn at requesting the meeting to be held in Uraga. Messengers kept coming day after day, asking about commander's health and bringing vegetables, eggs and sweet treats for him. In the next week, Captain Adams even made a tour to Uraga and back to exchange letters with higher Japanese officials, and yet 10 days of negotiations didn't bear a single fruit. On the 22nd of February, a 21-gun salute dedicated to Washington's birthday celebration was heard from afar. Finally, on 23rd, Kayama Eizaemon showed up. What a coincidence. And while officers were happy to see the man who played such an important role during their first visit and relieved to know he didn't suffer punishment for being too friendly with them, the offer Kayama brought was the same boring, please go to Uraga. They've been fed for almost two weeks already. To make Japanese officials reconsider, Perry lifted the anchors and ordered his ships to sail closer to Edo. And that worked. The next day Kayama returned with a suggestion to have a meeting in the village of Yokohama, directly opposite to where the ships were anchored at the moment. After the inspection of the shore, Barry seemed pleased with the location and agreed to hold a meeting there, leaving the visit to Edo for later. The treaty house was transported from Muraga piece by piece and set up in a new location. While waiting for the construction to be completed, Americans gave a few parties for Japanese officials, it all looks civil, but internally the crew made fun of Japanese wearing petticoats and bringing leftover food home in their newspapers. papers. But wait a bit and Japanese people will have their turn to laugh when an American sailor would mistake hair oil for liquor. At the same time, the government in Edo didn't feel like partying at all. They were battling around which conditions from President's letter they should comply with and which reject. Perry was scary. According to a Japanese interpreter, one day he threatened that in the event of war he would have 50 ships in nearby waters and 50 more in California. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understood, Perry bluffed and the American Navy at the time didn't even have that many ships. But Japanese government had no way of checking it, so the statement made them think twice about every step they take during the negotiations. On the 8th of March, the treaty house was completed, and ceremonies were about to start at noon. Yet in the morning, Perry saw that the new building was surrounded by cloth screens. This upset him for some reason, and he immediately sent the officer to demand that the screens be removed. They were hastily folded and taken away. At noon, following the colorful procession of Japanese officials, Perry made his grand entrance, starting with a gun salute, drum rolls, music, and 500 men escorts saluting his landing. Then, faster than spectators would wish, both parties entered the treaty house, and a negotiation began. First, tea and sweets were served, and then Perry and four of his men were invited to a smaller room, where five Bakufu commissioners were already waiting for them a long scroll was handed to Perry. This was addressed to His Majesty the President, as stated that while answering all the Americans' requests was positively forbidden by the laws of our imperial ancestors, Japanese government shall entirely comply with the proposals of your government concerning coal, wood, water provisions, and the saving of ships and their crews in distress. Long story short, Bakufu just called everything they didn't want to do impossible or forbidden and agreed to a bare minimum of requirements that would hopefully be enough to satisfy Americans and make them leave. While accepting the reply without arguing, Perry's mind was occupied by signing a treaty with Japan. So he handled commissioners a note of his own, stressing the importance of the treaty and a draft of such treaty, promising that Japan will benefit greatly from signing it. Of course, he also lied. And then he completely changed the topic. One of the marines from the Mississippi had died two days before the conference, and Perry asked for the permission to bury him on the Japanese land. While Nagasaki was the obvious first answer, he later set the precedent by negotiating the burial in Yokohama itself and, satisfied, returned to his ship. The next day, the burial was held, and Yanosuke, the chef interpreter of Japanese side, announced that March the 13th was set as the date of gift exchange. Now, present giving and entertainment is my absolutely favorite part of the full story. When the formalities of making lists of presents and persons they were assigned to were over, it was time for display. The telegraph line was set from the treaty house till the post located one mile away. Crowds gathered to challenge it and were astonished to see that message instantly travels between stations. The next big hit was a miniature railroad, completed with the train that could travel at around 20 miles per hour. As the report puts it, the train was so small that it could hardly carry a child of six years of age. The Japanese, however, were not to be cheated out of a ride. And as they were unable to reduce themselves to the capacity of the inside of the carriage, they betook themselves to the roof. Samurai took turns wheeling around, their loose ropes flying in the wind as they clung to the roof. March 16th was supposed to be the day of the next meeting. But the weather was quite rough, so it moved a day later. Instead, the letter arrived from commissioners to let the commander know about their decision. The letter said nothing new, to be honest, Uh, Japanese negotiators put their bet on stubbornly repeating the lines Wood, coal, water, okay, all the rest, only Nagasaki Until absolutely cornered and pushed to give up some more The next day the meeting took place, and if I were in the shoes of Japanese commissioners, I'd be very angry But despite Barry's arrogance and constant lies in fact, even his own chief interpreter, Williams, was much displeased by commander's actions by this moment. I also understand him almost losing his temper over the same Nagasaki, 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 when he clearly said anything but. And he had a point. Nagasaki was a city with a full system developed to control the foreigners, whose role was to abide and be happy they were allowed to come in the first place and I wouldn't want to see my countrymen, put somewhere in between spies and zoo animals, and treated accordingly. A port of Shimoda was offered instead, and a couple of days later officials returned with the answer that another option could be Hakodate. On the 24th of March, it was now Japan's turn to offer the gifts. As Commodore and his interpreters entered the treaty house, they saw that gifts were heaped on tables, benches, and even on the floor. There were scrolls, lacquer boxes and trays, porcelain tea sets, bamboo stands, silks, garments, dolls, swords, umbrellas, and hundreds of unusual seashells. While in the official report the commander describes a fine quality of all items, on the spot many Americans were disappointed by the gifts, as they didn't understand their value in Japan. But then the Americans were invited outside to see a very special present from the emperor. 200 bales of rice, each weighing around 60 kilograms. Soon everyone's attention was caught by, how Perry describes it, a body of monstrous fellows, who tramped down the beach like so many huge elephants. They were professional wrestlers and formed part of a retinue of the princes, who kept them for their private amusement and for public entertainment. They were some twenty-five in number, and were men enormously tall in stature, and immense in weight of flesh. Their scant costume, which was merely a coloured cloth around the lines, adorned with fringes and emblazoned with the armorial bearings of the prince to whom it belonged, revealed their gigantic proportions in all the bloated fullness of fat and breadth of muscle. A wrestler named Koyanagi was presented to Perry by the commissioners who urged the commander to feel the champion's muscles. He gripped Koyanagi's huge arm, then felt the neck, which he noted was creased like that of a prize ox. Officers also examined the wrestler and when they uttered exclamations of disbelief, he answered with an appreciative grunt. At a given signal, each wrestler lifted two bales of rice. And with ease carried them closer to American boats. One even held a sack with his teeth. Sailors then huffed and puffed, lifting the bales into their boats and unloading them. Next, it was time for the sumo wrestling matches. From this moment, description gets worse. And it made me wonder, the Americans were clearly amused. Yet in their letters and reports they sound rather bitter. Sumo wrestlers, for example, are barely human to them. Even in the Polish official report, they are mainly called monsters, beasts and animals. Was it the way to justify entering Japan and show that Americans are the saviors of this secluded nation? Or did they genuinely believe in what they wrote?
1: In college, I had a professor who would always say both things can be true. And I think that's really the case here. These type of wrestling matches took place with enslaved black wrestlers, not exactly sumo wrestling matches, but wrestling matches nonetheless. And it is sort of portrayed as like a barbaric primitive pastime. Western views of stagnation is a theme I keep going back to because that's really how the West would have viewed and certainly Americans. Around this time, the idea of the white man's burden is being formed. And the main idea around this is that it's the goal of the white man to go across the world and spread ideas of civilization, spread ideas of Christianity. And overwhelmingly, these ideas of civilization are Western European American standards of of what civilization is. That's certainly playing into it here. America genuinely does think that they are sort of saving the Japanese from themselves. And from what I gather about this exchange is that the Japanese put on a, a sumo wrestling match, then the Americans put on a minstrel show for them. And this minstrel show would have had a lot of stereotypes about various groups of people in America, most prominently black Americans. There likely uh, would have been an American sailor who would have put on blackface, like painted themselves entirely black and portrayed themselves as a, as a black person usually in very negative ways too, as, as a sort of backwards type of human that is through their nature dumb. They also would have done this with an Irish type of character. Irish immigration around this time is really um, becoming prominent in the United States. And they weren't excluded from these stereotypes. You know, typical stereotypes we, we still see associated with Irish people today, heavy drinker, all that type of stuff loves to fight. And they would have seen like Native American descriptions or stereotypes. So it's really interesting that they're doing all of this, right? Um, Trying to show them like what life in America is and overwhelmingly it's saying that non-white people are rather dumb. It makes me wonder what the Japanese people think about this the whole time. Are they, are they sitting there thinking, okay, do they think we're stupid too?
0: I'm not sure what they thought about the show, but they were not impressed by table manners of the Americans. They were too loud and they couldn't hold chopsticks.
1: Oh, really? And unfortunately, too loud is something when I've traveled that I hear quite a bit <laughs> is associated with Americans still, but it doesn't really surprise me. Right. And it kind of goes back to the way that the Japanese artists uh, depict Perry and the other Americans on um, that they're big, they're boisterous, they're loud, the black ships totally fit into that narrative too. Right. There's these giant black ships, puff out smoke, have all these giant guns. I mean, it's really fascinating to see how these cultures are sort of stereotyping one another.
0: Actually, again on this point, after the sumo match was over, it was time for Americans to show their presence to Japanese commissioners. Again, according to the report, it was a happy contrast which a higher civilization presented. To the disgusting display on the part of the Japanese officials. They presented the telegraph and railroad again and then put a military show, which commissioners seemed to enjoy. Three days later, on the 27th of March, a banquet was held on the Powhatan to repay for the hospitality on the shore. By this time, both parties were well aware of the etiquette and customs of each other, so the excursion around the ship, the meal painstakingly prepared by Paris' French chef, and entertainment went pretty smooth and in a truly friendly manner. At the end of the day, Japanese representatives were so drunk and cheerful that one of the commissioners even hugged the Commodore. So hard, says the report, that Paris' new epaulettes were crushed. After a couple more days of negotiation, the treaty that would later be known as the Treaty of Kanagawa was finally signed on March 31st. It provided for peace and friendship between the United States of America and the Empire of Japan, the opening of two ports, Shimoda and Hakodate, to the American ships to purchase coal, water and other necessities, assistance and protection for shipwrecked persons from American ships, and assurance that shipwrecked men and other US citizens would not be confined and could move freely. Both parties seemed very happy with the result, Perry opened Japan to American ships and even pushed for a possibility of consul residing in Shimoda, while Japanese commissioners saved Edo from the visit of foreigners by offering food and shelter for shipwrecked Americans in two small ports located far away from major cities. Well, anything better than warships near the capital and possible war. On the 4th of April the Saratoga left the squadron to deliver the news of the treaty to the US. As for Perry, he now planned to tour the ports that were open to Americans. Now it was finally the time for Perry and his crew to interact not only with Japanese officials, but with ordinary people. At first, they seemed really pleased with the encounters they had. Japanese villages were clean and well-maintained, everybody was polite, though bowing excessively. They finally met some women and children, who Americans were relieved to know, were a respectable part of society and not nearly objects, as it happened in some other Asian nations. But then they witnessed the biggest cultural shock of their journey to Japan. Public bathhouses. Men, women and children all bathed there together, all naked and happily rubbing each other's backs. To Americans, it looked appalling.
1: I can totally imagine that because You have these very Victorian ideas of what gender is and how the body is supposed to be portrayed. It's very supposed to be hidden. So I totally could see Americans showing up and witnessing this and just being absolutely appalled. That's really interesting. I didn't know they witnessed one of those bathhouses.
0: It was also during the second visit and all the travels following the treaty that artists, as well as ordinary people, made numerous sketches of the foreigners. As a result, we have many illustrations depicting sailors' behavior and misbehavior too. Images of tall, red-haired foreigners, their clothes and tools were a big hit in Japan. They were not Tengu-like creatures in court clothes anymore, they were real people with distinctive features. Though there were some confusions made when it came to printing the portraits. The old expression described foreigners as Kōmo hekigan, meaning red hair blue eyes. And as printing was done, not by artists themselves, but by separate craftsmen, some printers published portraits of Perry, where instead of the pupil, the whites of his eyes are colored blue. While Americans drew a lot too, they also brought cameras with them. Magic mirrors, as locals called them, were rumored to slowly kill anyone whose image was taken by the machine. But superstitions aside, it means that the first photos of the Japanese soon reached America. Did they? Did they reach newspapers? Were people eager to
1: see them? By Perry's expedition, photo technology is still rather primitive. I mean, the camera and photographs have been around for about 20-ish years at this point, but it's still very early. By this time, I mean, presidents have been photographed. The first president that was photographed is John Quincy Adams, who was the sixth president in the uh, 1840s. But it's still rather primitive. But many in America, um, especially those that consider themselves more educated and enlightened, tend to view the camera rather positively. Like you can't dispute it, right? It's right there in front of you. But photographs were nearly impossible to print in newspapers, which is how most Americans would have read and found out about all of this, it could be done. It was very expensive. And a lot of newspapers didn't have the funds to do that. So unfortunately, many Americans missed um, an opportunity to see this. And it was mostly reserved for, from what I can gather, like official um, dispatches, things like that. However, like I said earlier, those travel journals are becoming really popular. Few of them don't have photographs exactly, but they have sketches made by the, these people that are in pretty good detail, give an exact glimpse of what Japanese life was like. But I, most Americans, if they could have gotten their hands on a bunch of these photographs, they would have loved it.
0: Perry spent a few more months in Japan, exploring Shimoda and Hakudate before finally returning home. So when the news of the treaty finally became public in the U.S., he was still on the way back home. The news reached America in July 1854, and how was it taken?
1: Uh, Americans rejoice. It reaffirmed a lot of the assumptions that they already have about the world. Most importantly, that America specifically um, had some sort of destiny. Later, this is going to be called Manifest Destiny, uh, specifically when talking about expanding westward, that America sort of had this goal, this obligation to spread itself around the world and it also came with the assumption of the supremacy of white people but if even if you just were to look at the actual details of the treaty it's very in favor of the united states um america gains a lot from that just politically because like i said it really cements them as a world power now right like they're on par with france with britain and that's kind of who they're trying to emulate this whole time
0: and did the image of Japanese people change now that they signed this treaty? Did they become more like civilized or not really?
1: It's interesting because you mentioned earlier um there were some Japanese people John Manjiro, yes, who had experienced American culture and who was you know willing to say that it's superior in some way after um this and and more Americans come in, you see a lot more western influence in in japan and so. There's sort of this idea that the Japanese people are adopting, quote unquote, the correct ways of living, of of being. And so views of Japanese people, they get better. It's less of like, oh, it's a stagnant backwards country and more of, okay, it's coming into the fold of correct civilization.
0: Paris visits, as well as the signing of the treaty that allowed foreigners to freely roam around Japan started big political and social turmoil. Bakufu shogunal government showed that it had nothing to put against the foreign powers, the anti-foreign movement was on the rise and, to some extent, even encouraged by the emperor himself, who felt that nobody can prevent him from speaking up anymore. The same freedom was felt by the daimyo. At the same time, foreigners showed Japan that it is just a tiny part of the big wild world full of new inventions. In the next 15 years, Japan would undergo a crisis known as Bakumatsu, the end of the shogunate. It will rethink and rebuild itself. But this is the whole other story, started by four black ships that decided to ditch the rules and instead of Nagasaki, come to the port of Uraga on a cloudy day in July 1853. Thank you for listening to this episode of Japan Explained, and thank you, Garrett, for joining me today. Please remember that you can always find me on Instagram, Patreon or japanexplained.com and if you want to know more about small episodes that made American history just like Kurofune changed the course of events in Japan, go and check out Garrett's No Country for History podcast as it is exactly what you need. See you next time. Bye!